Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, the Florida Council of Arts and Culture, and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, the Charles Hosmer Morse Museum of American Art in Winter Park was founded in 1942 and has the most comprehensive collection of work by Louis Comfort Tiffany anywhere. We're still very much both of those things, a community, we like to say a community resource and a, a, a national treasure. We'll discuss the Florida School for the Deaf and Blind in St. Augustine. Nestled in the heart of our nation's oldest city is the Florida School for the Deaf and the Blind, which was originally established in 1885. And we'll talk with Leslie Kemp Poole about environmental history. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. The Charles Hosmer Morse Museum of American Art in Winter Park has the most comprehensive collection of work by Louis Comfort Tiffany found anywhere in the world. Lawrence Ruggiero is director of the Morse Museum. Tiffany was was born in 1848, the son of of, uh, Charles Tiffany, who uh, developed the, uh, created Tiffany um, jewelry store. Uh, so in 1848, there were all these revolutions happening in Europe, and, and, and America was really in a position to take off, and Tiffany was in a position to take off. In fact, he went over and bought jewels from the poor aristocracy that were undergoing a revolution in 1840, brought them here and sold them to the new American aristocracy. So Tiffany, the young Tiffany, grew up uh, uh, with increasing available resources. Then the Civil War came. During the Civil War, there were draft riots in New York. One day, Charles Tiffany looked outside, and in New York, there were riots of people coming in from everywhere, and they were hanging black people. They were, they were burning down the black orphanages. They didn't want to go and fight in the Civil War. So immediately, Tiffany, uh, the son, was sent with the family to Europe. Get away. It's not safe here right now. So they, he went off. We have the sketchbook that he, uh, that he um, uh, made during that trip when he was 16 years old. So Tiffany early found art and escape from the un- indelicacies and unpleasantnesses of terrestrial life. And, uh, and that's a very key aspect, I think, uh, of his work. He saw beauty then as this transformative experience which enhanced life and could produce in individuals who, who were sincere in trying to find it a, a real solace, a real uh, a higher psychological state, a consolation. 
Louis Comfort Tiffany was a painter, but is best known for his revolutionary approach to creating stained glass work. The Morse Museum displays Tiffany lamps, candlesticks, and other pieces, in addition to his impressive stained glass windows. Tiffany, really along with Lafarge, discovered a new way of making glass. And I guess in its simplest terms, uh, there was a great attempt at this point at the, at the, in the 1870s to make glass as pure as possible so that it had no imperfections. It, it could be the perfect glass for the modern era. And Tiffany went exactly the opposite way and said, how many imperfections can I fit in one square inch of leaded glass? And so he was enthralled with the possibilities of different colors, of striations, of bubbles, of textures, of all the variety of mistakes that could be made in, other, in, in perfect glass. And then he, he made a system, as it were, or a method out of this, having all of this great variety of glass, big chunks, little chunks, thin pieces, thick pieces, as I say, pieces with all different kinds of color, and saw that as mosaic ingredients to some larger pattern. So instead of taking a piece of glass, painting on it, and then baking it to make that glass, that was the classical way of stained glass time, it was, it was stained. This isn't really stained. This, the color is in the glass, then the glass is joined together amidst these metal structures, and so, say, the drawing is a leaf. Well, there's a piece of glass. I remember that piece of glass would say, say Tiffany, and that's got three different greens in it, and it's got texture. It's got even movement in the surface of it, all those imperfections that will help us make a leaf and then put together these great machines of visions of beauty with all of these different varieties of glass. That was distinctive. That was new. That was revolutionary, and that's really at base uh, what made his glass so special. The Charles Hosmer Morse Museum of American Art was founded in 1942 by Jeanette Genius McCain. Lawrence Ruggiero. Well, the museum was named after her grandfather, who was a, uh, an industrialist and part of the industrial, American industri Industrial Revolution. He was a kind of provider of capital goods, so he became extremely wealthy, although he's not one of the names along the, like Carnegie, for example, that everybody knows. But they were very wealthy people, and uh, he lived in Chicago, although he was originally from Johnsbury, Vermont. And uh, eventually, uh, he came to Florida, and uh, he, he moved here even full-time after he retired and bought a little house, a pretty big house, over here on, uh, uh, on New England Avenue and uh, redid it uh, and became a, uh, a philanthropist uh, here in the town. So uh, he adopted uh, the little town, is what the family apparently always said. So his uh, granddaughter, uh, Jeanette, after her mother passed away, moved here eventually, and she adopted the little town and became a philanthropist as well. So being very, very close to uh, Rollins College and to the community generally, uh, she established the Charles Hosmer Morse Museum in honor of her industrialist uh, grandfather. In the late 1800s, Charles Hosmer Morse donated a significant amount of land to the new city of Witter Park, including the two blocks of land known as Central Park, the property for the original City Hall, the first Congregational Church, the Witter Park Golf Course, and the Women's Club. His granddaughter, Jeanette McCain, was an artist and interior designer. 
She was obviously very wealthy because of the tremendous amount of, uh, of resources which uh, uh, devolved to her. Uh, but, and so she was a philanthropist and perhaps first and foremost, but she was very much an artist. She studied with Hans Hoffmann, in fact, famous uh, expressionist uh, abstract artist in New York. Uh, and uh, yes, she became an interior decorator and uh, loved that kind of work. And in fact, established doing vignettes at the Morris Museum, which were rooms that she would design, contemporary rooms, uh, contemporary at the time, in which various uh, objects from the collection would be included, which uh, showed uh, you and Jeanette felt this was another way to show a living object out of a museum context in a more, uh, something closer to a life context. So there was a uh, pedagogical uh, element in it as well. Jeanette's husband, Hugh McCain, graduated from Rollins College in 1930. He became an art instructor there in 1932 and was president of the college from 1952 until 1969. He was an artist, uh, and really in many ways, I think first and foremost an artist, but he was a very clever Renaissance man. And for a time, he's from western Pennsylvania, uh, came here to, uh, to Orlando, uh, graduated Rollins, and um, was a fellow at uh, Laurelton Hall with uh, uh, Louis Comfort Tiffany. Uh, he married Jeanette, became the first director of the museum when Miss McCain founded the museum, and uh, then became president of Rollins College, and along with Mrs. McCain, joined her in philanthropic activities throughout. But uh, his special baby, as it were, outside of his uh, uh, career at Rollins, uh, was, uh, the, was the museum. Hugh McCain was director of the Morse Museum from its inception in 1942 until his death in 1995. The museum was originally on the campus of Rollins College. It relocated to Welburn Avenue before finding its permanent home in an expanded facility on Park Avenue. Lawrence Ruggiero. In the beginning, it was at Rollins College, and that's where Mrs. McCain was a very active contributor, and as I say, where Mr. McCain became, uh, became president eventually. Uh, but in uh, 1978, I think it was, uh, they uh, moved from Rollins to Wellborn Avenue, and it became independent. So the museum kind of went, uh, uh, developed in its, in its own way. Then uh, in the early 90s, although he had been looking for some time for a permanent home, a more permanent home, um, he uh, bought the properties in where we are now, and uh, we opened the first part of this museum in 1995, when unfortunately he passed away. Uh, since then, uh, we've added, uh, we've put the, uh, the great Tiffany Chapel of 1893 uh, together, and install that here at the museum. And then in 2011, we uh, built a wing to accommodate the Tiffany material that remains from Laurelton Hall, Tiffany's great country estate on Long Island. So the museum has uh, undergone quite an evolution physically. Uh, I think even more significantly, it's undergone a, a, an evolution uh, in, in terms of its collection. When the Morse Museum started in 1942, there was very little Tiffany work in the collection. Laurelton Hall was the artist's estate in Long Island, New York. When Laurelton Hall burned down in 1957, Hugh and Jeanette McCain rescued piles of Tiffany's art from the ruins of the estate and brought it back to Winter Park. That really changed uh, the nature of the museum ultimately, although what people don't remember 
is that from that period from 50, it wasn't until 20 years later, until almost 1980, that anyone took Tiffany seriously. The McCains were pioneers in the area of Tiffany. So uh, for much of its life, Tiffany was not an important factor. And this leads us to what is uh, underneath the museum. It's kind of its childhood, its basic values, its DNA, which is pedagogical, which is to make uh, its dedication to making art a life-enhancing aspect of the daily lives of people in this community. And in the McCainian view, this did not require great art. This only required art that was sincerely made because they felt any art that was sincerely made deserved serious consideration. And so this uh, desire to bring people to art was not dependent upon having great names, whether it's Tiffany or Raphael or Michelangelo or Renoir. And so much of the museum's life, the first half of its life, was really as a community resource to bring art to the lives of people in the, in the community. Then when Tiffany not only came to the museum, the material came to the museum, but Tiffany became famous and valuable, then uh, the museum acquired a national role. But we're still very much both of those things, a community, we like to say a community resource and a, a, a national treasure. While the Morse Museum does have work by other artists, Tiffany is at the heart of the collection, what is perhaps Tiffany's greatest work is on display, the chapel interior created for the 1893 World's Fair in Chicago. It became the, the, the final moment at which uh, Tiffany went from being an American to being internationally renowned among the pantheon of international design and art artists. Uh, it's a magnificent essay in mosaic, so his glass, every kind of glass, there are columns with these quarter-inch pieces of glass. If you look at one of those quarter-inch pieces of glass, you see three and four different colors, layers of color in them. They have all of those imperfections that Tiffany wanted to have. And then this is all formed into an elaborate, um, uh, somewhat Byzantine, but again, hard to pin stylistically, uh, high Episcopalian, almost Catholic uh, architecture, interior architecture. So when one enters, one is surrounded by this essay in glass, this kind of symphony of color and light reflectance, which is an incredibly dramatic experience, which goes to the heart of what uh, Tiffany was trying to do and to produce this numinous experience, this experience, this otherworldly experience, this new psychological state, this, this uh, interruption of the horrors of daily life through art, through beauty. And so it's a magnificent statement of, uh, of art in general and of Tiffany's philosophy uh, in particular. The Charles Hosmer Morse Museum of American Art is in Winter Park. We spoke with museum director Lawrence Ruggiero.
This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Join us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org to watch archived episodes of our public television series, Florida Frontiers, and much more. You can also subscribe to our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly. That's myfloridahistory.org. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, a unique school was established in 1885, just north of where the city of St. Augustine was first established in 1565. Yeah, that's right. Nestled in the heart of our nation's oldest city is the Florida School for the Deaf and the Blind, which was originally established, as you said, in 1885. And it was actually in 1882 that a gentleman by the name of Thomas Hines Coleman originally from South Carolina, first pitched the idea to Florida's governor at the time in 1882, the idea being that Florida needed to facilitate some kind of school to cater uh, to the state's population of both hearing and visually impaired students because they were struggling in, in a lot of the rural public schools throughout the state of Florida. And Florida was actually one of the last states, specifically in the South, to put forth any kind of funding for a school specifically for that purpose. But it was Coleman who in 1882 pitched the idea to the state legislature. Shortly thereafter, the state unanimously approved uh, $20,000 to initially build structures to facilitate the construction of, of a school. And the state began soliciting uh, bids around the state. They were asking for Florida cities to donate property or at least to sell property at a fairly cheap rate to begin construction of the school. And it was St. Augustine that came in with the lowest bid uh, for about $1,000. They, they gave the state um, five acres, uh, which is uh, really in the heart of where the, the property exists today. So construction began in 1884, and by December of 1885, a small wood frame building was completed uh, at the cost of around $12,000. The first students began to arrive a little bit later in the year, and the population of the school steadily grew through the late 19th century. The first class actually graduated in 1898, uh, and into the 20th century, the, the school steadily grew grew and diversified their educational opportunities and uh, industrial uh, educational opportunities as well. You have here some original materials published by the school relating to its history. Yeah, that's right. What we're looking at are three biennial reports from the president of the school for the years 1922 through 1930. And essentially, these were uh, written descriptions of the activities that were going on in the school. They included photographs of what the students were involved in, different extracurricular activities. Um, and as I mentioned before, also other industrial activities, even from the outset in the 1880s. It was the uh, goal of the uh, board of trustees and also the educators uh, at the school to not not only provide a, a classical uh, education, reading, writing, arithmetic, but also provide uh, students who were uh, either visually or, or hearing impaired uh, with the tools they needed to become self-sufficient uh, in life. Essentially, they wanted these students to graduate, possibly go on to schools and institutions of higher learning, but at the very least be able to enter society and to be able to function. Uh, so they learn how to read Braille. They learn how to uh, read music using uh, Braille for some of the, the blind 
design students. They also learn different uh, signing techniques, all of these different tools that would, that would help them uh, essentially to enter life and to become functioning members of society in the early 20th century. And within these biennial reports, uh, we get a breakdown of, of what the cost was. And, you know, of course, the cost of running a school like this was a little bit more than it would have been for any other public school within the state of Florida, just because of the uh, different demands on, on educators. They had to have teachers who were specially trained to handle the students, to help uh, enable these capabilities. So if we look at some of these biennial reports, we notice photographs of students uh, playing football, uh, working in uh, shops, building uh, brooms. There were girls involved in sewing classes. Again, the idea was to try and uh, help them learn some kind of trade, as well as receive a classical education. Now, there was at least one very famous student from the Florida School for the Deaf and Blind. Yeah, that's right. From 1937 to 1945, uh, Ray Charles Robinson attended the Florida School for the Deaf and the Blind, more famously known simply as Ray Charles, the uh, uh, R&B singer and songwriter. Uh, he attended the school. Uh, unfortunately, he didn't graduate. He uh, purportedly played a prank on one of his teachers and was actually expelled from the school. And according to some of his biographies, he uh, never really uh, lived that down and, and never came back and performed in the city of St. Augustine. But he learned to uh, read Braille at that school. He also learned how to um, play classical piano. In fact, the, the piano that Ray Charles played is on display at the uh, Lincolnville Museum in the historic uh, Lincolnville neighborhood in St. Augustine. And the school actually still exists today. It enrolls a uh, little over 600 students. And originally when the school was founded, it was a um, strictly a dormitory school, meaning that students came from throughout the state of Florida and they lived at the school for around eight months of the year. Nowadays, they, they do still allow uh, students to stay there from other counties, but most of the students live in and around St. John's County, but they also do a number of outreach programs. They send specialized instructors out to uh, different school districts throughout the state of Florida to help facilitate um, the learning of, of the visually and, and hearing impaired students of the state of Florida. Great. Well, thanks, Ben. Sure. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. It's all This is Florida Frontiers. Leslie Kemp Poole is author of the book Saving Florida, Women's Fight for the Environment in the 20th Century. She spoke with Robert Casanello. Leslie Kemp Poole is an assistant professor of environmental studies at Rollins College in Winter Park. I sat down with her to talk about environmental history. I started the interview by asking her what makes environmental history different from other fields of study. Well, environmental history is taking a look at how the land, or the landscape, the environment has shaped people and how in return people have shaped that landscape and it's had a big impact. We just don't always think about it um, 
from different points of view. For example, the Dust Bowl is really a major environmental disaster. It had a huge impact on the United States and on environmental policies and on federal policies. But it, we don't always think of it as an environmental disaster or, or as a part of environmental history. And so I've concentrated on that. And one of the things I've found in my research about Florida has been the issue of environmental justice in the state. And that's really looking at what happens when the environment is de degraded and who suffers the most from it. And studies have shown time and again around the country and in Florida that the people who are most often hurt by that are the poor and minorities and that they live near these degraded areas and that they work in them very often as well. Here I asked Professor Poole to point out issues important to environmental researchers in Florida. People in Central Florida don't even realize um, the impact of people uh, by Lake Apopka, which is widely considered the most polluted lake in Florida, but it was polluted from a variety of sources, including agricultural fields nearby, where a lot of different chemicals were sprayed. But those workers who worked in those fields were also sprayed by those chemicals, and as a result have had some long-term health issues and cannot get anyone to listen to them or to do any kind of long-term health studies on them. And they live in an environment where there's uh, toxic dumps nearby and a polluted lake. And so they're the ones who suffer. They're powerless, seemingly voiceless. But they've been working hard over the last few years to really try to get the voice out and to let people know what the story is about their conditions and to try to get the public's attention. Another example in Florida, we've had toxic dumps. There's a case up in Pensacola that's been long-term. Uh, they call it Mount Dioxin, right in the middle of downtown Pensacola. And it was a EPA cleanup site, but it led to the pollution of a nearby African-American community. And it became one of the first communities that the federal government paid to move the people out of their neighborhood because they couldn't afford to leave. They were low income. They had nowhere to go and no recourse when the pollution started to affect their health and their lives. I wondered what her students thought of her research. Well, students get it. I think they realize from a common sense point of view that the people who are least able to avoid environmental disasters and environmental degradation are the poor. And once they start to think about it and then we start to talk about the demographics of it, I think that, that they understand that. And, but probably the most effective way is either to take them out and let them see one of these toxic sites or to bring in people who have been doing work in those areas. Uh, last year I brought to my class Joy Toll Ezel, who has been working to try to clean up the Fen Holloway River in Perry, Florida. And she came to class and started telling them the story of her life, about how she grew up in this rural area and how much she loved it, and how this river has been so important to the Perry area. But during World War II, the city and county government, in a hopes of bringing in a huge paper plant, uh, went to the legislature and got special designation of the Finn Holloway as an industrial river, which meant that the plant could be built and it could dump anything it wanted into the river. Well, some of the chemicals that went into the river include dioxin, which is widely considered one of the largest cancer-causing chemicals in the world. Joy became incensed when it became clear that the river was polluted, that local wells had become polluted, and that the lifestyle of the people in that area had been horribly degraded. And it was a low-income rural area that was welcoming industry, thinking, oh, they're bringing money in, they're bringing in jobs, but there was no thought to what it would do to the environment. So she has made it her mission for the last 
two decades and more to try to clean up the Finn Holloway, to get the legislature to reverse this act, and to make this plant clean up the mess it's made. You can hear my entire interview with Leslie Kemp Poole by going to the podcast, Every Tongue Got to Confess, or at communitiesconference.net. I'm Robert Casanello with Florida Frontiers. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org and join the conversation on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and Robert Casanello. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, the Florida Council of Arts and Culture, and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.